0: ever happens by accident that happened you can bet someone planned it that way the events recorded in our passage tonight second samuel chapter 14 all the way through second samuel chapter 15 verse 23 did not happen by accident several conspiracies all converged at once to make for a very difficult situation for king david i should note here that man's conspiracies are powerless In the face of God's omnipotence, any careful student of history will acknowledge that conspiracies have existed in just about every historical era. There have been political conspiracies, economic conspiracies, military conspiracies. And the individuals involved in these conspiracies often think that they're quite powerful, when in reality they are putty in God's hands. No conspiracy can act outside of the sovereignty of God. The bottom line, God should be feared, not the conspirators and not conspiracies. The first of the conspiracies I referred to a moment ago and just now is is the subject of chapter 14. Joab, David's nephew, one of the leaders of the armies of Israel, the man who followed David's orders and put Uriah the Hittite in a position that would surely bring about his death, This Joab, at the beginning of chapter 14, perceived that the king's heart was on Absalom. It's probably going too far, as some translations do, to say that the king's heart was inclined toward Absalom, as the New American Standard does, or that the king's heart longed for Absalom, as the NIV does. All we can say is that the king's heart, here which is representative of the emotion and the thought process, was on Absalom. It makes perfect sense for David to be thinking about Absalom constantly. He was his son, after all. And there was this problem of how to bring about a reconciliation of one son who had murdered his oldest son. So certainly given the present circumstances, I can see why David's mind would be on Absalom consistently. So Joab devises a plan to stir David to take action. He sends for this wise woman from Tekoa. That term that's translated wise in New American Standard could be translated cunning or shrewd. Cunning is probably a better rendering. Tekoa is a town that's located about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. What happens here in chapter 14 is reminiscent of Nathan's earlier parable, That inspired David to wake up to his sin. Joab instructs the woman from Tekoa to tell David a story that he hopes will wake up David to see his son. Nathan wanted him to see his sin. Joab wanted him to see his son. There are two big differences, though, and we need to keep these in mind. It's critical to keep these in mind between the Nathan episode, where a story is used to get David to act, and this episode. The first is that Nathan's parable was inspired by God. The woman from Tekoa's parable was inspired by Joab. The second thing is that in the first instance, Nathan, who was a prophet from God, delivered the message to David. In this case tonight, a cunning woman from Tekoa acting on the orders of Joab is going to bring this message to David. So these are two different things. The plot of this woman's story is pretty simple. Through this woman, Joab is going to attempt to trap David into granting a pardon for a man who murdered his brother. If David would do this for somebody that he doesn't know, if she can convince him to verbalize that he'll do this for somebody that he doesn't know, then he could hardly withhold a pardon from his son. That's the plot. And here's how it, is, here's how it works out in verse 2 of chapter 14. So Joab sent to Koah and brought a wise woman, or a, a cunning woman, from there and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner, and put on mourning garments now, and do not anoint yourself with oil, but be like a woman who has been mourning for the dead many days. Then go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Again, let me remind you the difference between Nathan's parable and this one. God put the words in Nathan's mouth. Joab puts the words in the woman from Tekoa's mouth. Now when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Truly, I'm a widow, for my husband is dead. She's playing on David's compassion. And your maidservant had two sons. You don't see it in the English text, certainly not in the New American Standard, but the, the term that she's going to use of herself is going to change from the beginning of the parable or the beginning of the story. It's actually a lie. It's not a parable. The beginning of this story to the end of the story. The first word that she uses for maidservant is of a humble female maidservant of the lowest order. Later on, after she hooks David, she's going to change the term to a servant, a female servant of a higher order to whom something is owed. But right now, she's coming groveling to David. I'm your maidservant. This is the one of the lowest order. Uh, your maidservant had two sons, but the two of them struggled together in the field And there was no one to separate them. So one struck the other and killed him. Now behold, the whole family has risen against your maidservant. And they say, Hand over the one who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed, and destroy the air also. Thus they will extinguish my coal which is left, so as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Remember, there's no truth to her story. This is all made up by Joab. This woman's a great actress, and she's using what I would call an emotional appeals technique on a very passionate, should I say, very compassionate man. The phrase that she uses, extinguish my coal, which is left, is idiomatic for something like this is the end of the family line. If you don't do something about this, king, it's going to be the end of the family line. The implication being, since she's already said she's a poor widow, that if this is the end of the line of her family, this is the end of the line for her too. I'm just a poor widow. I'm an innocent bystander. If this something's not done about this, I'm in big trouble. Because a widow in, in ancient Israel or the ancient Middle East, unless they had somebody take care of them, they were in big trouble. So if it's the end of the line, then then it's for the son, it's the end of the line for her too. Then in verses 8 through 17, Then the king said to the woman, go to your house, and I'll give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, oh, my lord, the king, the iniquity is on me and my father's house, but the king and his throne are guiltless. Let me paraphrase. She's just saying, she's, she's hamming it up a little bit more. Actually, more than David probably should have fallen for. But she's just saying, whatever decision you make, I'm sure it's going to be the right one. If there's any fault here, it's going to be mine. It's not going to be yours. That's my... Paraphrase. Verse 10, so the king said, whoever speaks to you, bring him to me, and he will not touch you anymore. So she's really hooking David in with this whole compassion thing. Then she said, please let the king remember the Lord your God, so that the avenger of blood may not continue to, to destroy it, lest they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair on your son shall fall to the ground. See, David's getting stronger and stronger as this goes on. She's playing him like a fiddle, like a violin. Then the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak a word to my lord, the king. And he said, Speak. Remember, already, he'd already kind of told her to go. He would think about it. But she keeps on. So he says, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring back, his banished one. This is a gutsy woman. She got, she hooked him and then she said, almost like Nathan did, you're the man. But she has her own version of you're the man. Verse 14, for we shall surely die and are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one may not be cast out before him. Now the reason I've come to speak this word to the Lord, my king, is because the people have made me afraid. So your maidservant said, let me now speak to the king. Perhaps the king will perform the request of his maidservant. That's the other word. Now now that she's hooked him, she's elevated herself to a little higher level, someone that's owed something. She feels like she's got him on a technicality now. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy both me and my son from the inheritance of, Then your maidservant said, Please let the word of my lord the king be comforting. As for the angel of God, so is my lord the king to discern good and evil. And may the lord your God be with you. Wonderful performance. This great. Verse 14 is the key verse in this ruse. She says, in effect, in verse 14, Life is short. God's plan is not for people to remain estranged, but to get back together. She's saying, in effect, whatever happened to mercy? Why won't you show mercy? But is this from God, or is it from Joab? I would agree. Yes, God's will is the ultimate reconciliation of people to himself. But before we could be reconciled to God, something had to happen, didn't it? Called the cross. A pretty big something had to happen before the reconciliation could take place. There was a price to be paid before God could exercise mercy toward us. You might look back at David. David was reconciled to God after his great sin. But he confessed and he repented before he was reconciled. David wasn't reconciled in that year that he remained silent about sin, about his sin. He was only reconciled after he confessed and repented, after he did it God's way. This woman is taking a biblical principle, the principle of mercy and reconciliation, and misapplying it. People do this all the time, but this is a perfect example in the scripture of it. There is nothing in this text at all that would indicate that Absalom had confessed this sin or certainly not that he had repented of this sin. Before God's mercy is extended to us, we receive it either by grace through faith at salvation or by grace through confession to be restored to fellowship. Absalom had to do his part. There's no apology that's been in. There's no confession to God that's been recorded at all. This woman's asking for mercy to be extended to someone who's unrepentant. That's different from Nathan's story with David. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. I think something you might understand. Let's say a fellow has an affair on his wife, and he gets caught, because fellows typically do. When he comes back to his wife, do you think the wife, a normal wife, is going to say, Welcome back into our home. Welcome back into my presence. Welcome back into my fellowship if the fellow has not at the very least said, Hey, listen, I'm sorry about that. Don't know what I was thinking. I was wrong. Would you forgive me? It's much more likely that the wife is going to receive that person back into her fellowship if the husband has confessed it, has said he's sorry, and has repented of it and has turned away. How many wives do you know, and I'm going to tell you what the answer is, none. How many wives do you know that are going to receive that fellow back into her home, into her fellowship, into the intimacy of marriage if he comes and says, yeah, I had that affair, and by the way, not sorry about it, and I intend to do it again next time I get an opportunity. You show me that woman, I'd like to talk to her, like to meet her. She's much more of a saint than I would ever be. Listen, God didn't work that way. Mercy doesn't work that way. So go back to verse 14, and again, we'll see what she's asking. She says, For we shall surely die, and are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. We're all going to be gone someday, King David. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways, so that the banished one may not be cast out from him. That's true, provided the banished one is repentant about about the activity. She's asking, Joab is asking, Absalom to come back with no repentance for what he's done. He murdered his brother. Verses 18 through 20 find the woman admitting to Joab or admitting that Joab was behind all of this and showering David with flattery. This whole thing about the servant of the Lord or the angel of God uh, previously. But my Lord is wise Like the angel of God to know all that is in the earth. She is pouring it on. She's flattering. The angel of the Lord was the Lord, by the way, in the Old Testament. So she's saying, you have the wisdom of God. A few generations later, somebody might say, you have the wisdom of Solomon. But she's saying, you've got the wisdom like an angel of God. Josh Billings, the humorist from the 1800s, had it right when he said, flattery is like cologne meant to be smelled not swallowed. (laughs) She is playing to David's pride to accomplish her goals or Joab's goals. To give a sincere compliment is one thing. To flatter for the purpose of manipulation is altogether different. There should have been some bells going off in David's soul somewhere. He should have been smart enough to pick this up. Then we see Absalom's return to Jerusalem in chapter 14, verses 21 to 33. The remainder of this chapter concerns the return of Absalom to Jerusalem. David instructs Joab to go to Gesher and bring Absalom home. Presumably, Joab has to assure Absalom that his father's forgiven him because Absalom's not likely to come back thinking he's going to be executed. In any case, Absalom returns home only to find out that his father won't see him when he gets there. David's obviously conflicted. Absalom had been on his mind. He loved Absalom. But in his core, David knew something wasn't right. Something's just not right here. It's entirely possible that David wanted to make Absalom pay in some way for the murder of his brother. We just don't know. The text doesn't say but we could ask, David, if we were there and we had the nerve to do it, if you're not going to see him when he comes home, why would you bring him back in the first place? We might begin to wonder at this point, given the fact that this was an episode of manipulation by Joab, that got him back in the first place, given that David won't see him when he does come back, we should be beginning to wonder, if we haven't read through to the end, if this is really going to work out the way Joab wanted it to work out, well, we know that it's not going to. In verses 25 through 28, Now in all Israel, no one was as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There was no defect in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, and it was cut at the end of every year, he had cut it for it was heavy on his head, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. And to Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. Absalom was beautiful. Tamar was beautiful. David is handsome. This is a good-looking family according to the word of God. Absalom is a good-looking man who's got a good personality and a full head of hair. He cut it off once a year, and it weighed three pounds. That's a lot of hair. I'm guessing that this was a source of pride for Absalom, because I don't know about the rest of you guys, but I've I've been to the barbershop quite a bit in my life, and I've never seen anybody weighing out the hair to see how much (laughs) it weighed. I'm thinking we're starting to get a clue that this fellow Absalom is full of himself. Not only that, but at the same time, we get the feeling that he's growing more and more resentful toward his father. That's not a good combination. Pride plus resentment. When his father refuses to see him, Absalom becomes frustrated and turns to Joab for help. You'd think he would. That'd be the logical place to go. Joab's the one that came to Gesher in the first place to come get him. Joab's the one that apparently gave him assurances that everything would be okay if you come back. It's been two years, though, since he's been back. Not two weeks, two years since he's been back. That's a long time, and Absalom figures that's long enough. I think Absalom had issues with waiting. Had line issues. My wife tells me that I have line issues. Standing in line for, I don't like waiting in line at the movie. I sure don't like waiting in line at Papacito's Mexican restaurant, especially when they tell you it's going to be 20 minutes. It ends up being an hour and a half, and I was hungry to begin with. I do have line issues. But you think I have line issues? Absalom had line issues too. But his weight was more than an hour and a half. His weight was two years. And he can't handle this. But Joab has gotten the message, apparently, from David, and he won't see Absalom. Joab keeps going to Absalom, or Absalom keeps going to Joab, rather, and ask him to intervene in this situation. But Joab's not going to do it. Joab has apparently got a message from David, I'm not seeing the guy. Don't set any meetings up. So he refuses to help. He's not even going to give Absalom an audience. So... Absalom, being Absalom, and we're starting, we said a minute ago, he's full of himself and he's prideful. He has a field of barley right next to Joab's field of barley. So he has his servants burn Joab's field to get Joab's attention. As I read that, I realized it's a good thing that Absalom was the king's son and that Absalom and Joab are cousins, they're related, because he doesn't know who he's messing with, with Joab. Joab's kind of fellow has got a fairly hot temper. And if he wasn't the king's son, that would have been the end of Absalom. So he does get his attention. But it's going to come back to haunt him. Skip down now to verse 32. And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent for you, saying, Come here, that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Gesher? It would have been better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. And if there's any iniquity in me, let him put me to death. There is iniquity in him. He's a murderer. He's an unrepentant murderer. This is how prideful the guy is. This is how how much he's been blinded by his pride. If there's any iniquity in me, let him put me to death. There is iniquity in him. He's a prideful fellow. So when Joab came to the king and told him he he called for Absalom, Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Then the conspiracy begins. It's very probable that the conspiracy doesn't actually begin at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 15. very possible, if not probable, that this conspiracy began maybe as far back as when Absalom is in Gesher. If I ever get back to Jerusalem, if I ever get back there, and certainly those two years, that were spent in Jerusalem, It's very likely that this conspiracy had been brewing. Absalom will use his good looks and his charm to win the hearts of the people of Israel right under his father's nose. Now it came about, I'm in chapter 15, verse 1. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. This is like a bodyguard. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate And it happened that when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, "'From what city are you?' And he would say, "'Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel.' Then Absalom would say to him, "'See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king.' Moreover, Absalom would say, "'Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or any cause could come to me, and I would give him justice.' And it happened that when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put his hand on him and take hold of him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came about at the end of the New American Center, says 40 years that Absalom said to the king. That 40 years is an impossibility. It's a textual problem. It's four years, not 40. 40 won't work in the whole chronology of David's life. He does this thing at the gate for quite some time. He spent this time planning for a coup. You may wonder what David was doing at this time. Other revelation tells us that this was the time that David was building his own palace. He's busy. This is the time that David is procuring materials for use in the temple later. David's busy. He's not paying any attention to what Absalom is doing. He was preoccupied. While Absalom used criticism... Promises and flattery to undermine the Lord's anointed. To undermine the Lord's anointed. Some have asked if I think Absalom was a believer. I see no indication of it whatsoever. If he was a a Yahweh worshiper. He certainly was not a Yahweh worshiper that was walking in fellowship with Yahweh. David is the Lord's anointed. Not Absalom. Not Amnon. David is the king. If David's going to be removed from this kingship, it's going to be God that removes him, not Absalom. So we need to remember that. That's one of the key ideas in this passage. Even though there are conspiracies, they're not going to work unless God gives the okay. We need to fear God, not the conspiracies. We need to fear God, not the conspirators. And this is not to say that I'm naive enough to think that there are no conspiracies in our world or in our country. But we ought not to fear the conspiracies. Our fear should be toward the Lord. That's the point here, too. Yes, there are conspiracies, but is it going to take David down? Let me, give you, let me take you out of any suspense. No, it's not going to. This is not God's will. So when the time is right, then Absalom, though, is going to make his move. In the verses 7 through 12, Now it came about at the end of four years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living in Gesher and Aram, saying, If the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. Don't be fooled by this. This doesn't mean he's a Yahweh worshiper. This is a lie. My dad used to say this is a bald-faced lie, whatever that meant. I never asked him what it meant. (laughs) This is a bald-faced lie. The king said to him, Go in peace. When's the last time David told Absalom to go somewhere in peace? when he killed Amnon. Go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, who were invited and went innocently. They did not know anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city in Gilho. While he was offering the sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. This is where we'll finish tonight. We'll have to pick up the rest of what I wanted to cover at a later time. There's just not enough time to do it justice, and I don't want to rush through it. But the fact that Ahithophel is among the conspirators is a big blow to David. Absalom was arrogant. And arrogance blinds wisdom. But Ahithophel, that's a different story. Ahithophel will add wisdom to Absalom's coup. But Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. The father of her father, Eliim, who was one of David's mighty men. Mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 23. You're starting to get the connections. It wasn't just Uriah the Hittite that was one of David's mighty men, but Bathsheba's father was also one of David's mighty men. This betrayal of David and Uriah and Bathsheba really hit close to home. Hebron's not far from Jerusalem. That's going to be an important geographical point. It's only about 20 miles away to the south. It's where Abraham built an altar after he separated from the Lot. It's where David was anointed king over Judah. It's where Absalom was born. Since it was so close, when David's going to find out that there is a conspiracy against him and Absalom's making a move on him, he knows he's got to move fast. Those loyal to David will agree that he's got to move fast and they want to go with him. God's will decides who's going to be king and when they're going to be king over Israel. In the same way, in the same way, my friends, God's sovereignty and his providence rule the day in your life too. Now, you may not be the victim of a conspiracy that's trying to remove you from the kingship and take your life. But you may have conspiracies within, within the office. Someone's trying to remove you from your position in the office. I've got to tell you, I don't care how strong the conspiracies are in the office. God is stronger. Your fear doesn't need to be of your co-workers who are trying to get you thrown off the job. You need to fear God. You need to respect God in the proper way. Go to Him for the answers, for the wisdom in how to handle it. There may be conspiracies within your own family. I know families that have these kind of issues. We need not fear the members of our own family. We need not fear the conspirators. Even though they may be very full of themselves, God is the one who will take care of this. God's going to take care of David. Now, this is part of David's discipline. So this one is not going to include him losing the king's